Well, good morning, Anthem. It's good to be with you. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew 6. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to be talking about the hope of eternity, how the hope of eternity keeps us from being crazy people in the present. Uh, because I don't know about you, but uh, these are crazy times, and uh, crazy times tend to create crazy people. So I don't know about you, but I feel a little bit overwhelmed right now. Uh, on a daily basis, things keep coming at us so quickly, and I'm, I'm kind of trying to constantly kind of tread water and just figure out how to navigate what is going on in the world around us and how to live. And one of the things, as thinking about it and looking at this passage this week, is it dawned on me, and this, this passage spoke so deeply to my soul. Because what I realized is, of course, we are not people of the times, though. We are people of eternity. And this isn't our forever. Uh, and there's a story I once heard that captures this. It was a story of, and I think some of you might have heard me in conversations share this story. Uh, but it was, uh, so I apologize if this is uh, repetitive, but there was a little boy, and his family decided they wanted to play Monopoly one evening together. Which, by the way, as a side note, it's never a good idea for family fun times to play Monopoly. Uh, usually ends up in a civil war within the family by the end of the night. Grandma flipping up the card table, throwing pieces everywhere and screaming at everyone. Uh, but this family played Monopoly and it actually went okay, uh, but this boy started to uh, essentially dominate the game. And, and as he dominated the game, he started kind of, you know, as, as, as cocky young boys do, he, he kind of was flaunting it and kind of laughing at him. And, and, and every time he went around the board, just more and more racking up all the things on the board and, and dominating everyone. And, and, of course, by the end of the game, everyone just kept getting more and more silent and just kind of looking down. And then by the end of the game, everyone just kind of got up and, and just went their own separate ways. And the boy had one, and he had all the cash in his hand, right, and, uh, and all the tokens, and, and he was... Uh, celebrating his victory. And, and, and after he was done, there was a moment, the grandmother, everyone else was gone, said, are you ready now for the true lesson of the game? I said, okay. She said, it all goes back in the box. It all goes back in the box. You see, so often every year we make another lap around the board. We call it the game of life. And we probably accrue some things. We probably uh, take some steps in our careers. We probably uh, we mature in our career. We, we acquire things. But so often what happens in this life is we get so focused on the board and so focused on what's right in front of us, the next roll of the dice, the next time we pass go, the next time that we take another square, that we gain that next property, we focus so much on that that we forget that at the end, what ultimately matters will not go in that box. And that's what Jesus today wants us to remember is that Ultimately, our lives are not meant for what goes in the box. That's not to make them trivial. That's not to just throw them away. But in fact, everything in this world, every time around the board, everything you acquire, everything given to you, everything that has a grace in your life and every privilege you have is meant to roll up to glory to God and remind you that He is our eternity. And so this is Jesus is 
helping us in this passage to see that the essence of eternal life is simply the joy of being at home with our Heavenly Father. That's going to be his focus today because the essence of eternity is to know you, Lord, Jesus says in John 17, 3, and eternal life in you. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that the essence of eternal life, what we will get when we get to heaven for all of eternity is we will enjoy relationship with God. That's why I love this quote by a theologian, Donald Fairbairn. He says, salvation is our sharing by adoption. Catch this. Salvation is our sharing by adoption and the son's own relationship to the father. We, we just saying about how when death is arrested and my life is beginning, that I'm free and I'm free. Why is that true? It's true because now I am free to know the Heavenly Father and to know Him as a son and be adopted into relationship with Him and to, to know Him freely. That that's eternal life. And that's the goal of what Jesus wants us to see. So part of it is today we're going to be in Matthew 6. Again, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21. Now, if we were to read that and you were just to take a minute to look over that, you would notice that it seems kind of like an, kind of an awkward or weird place to be breaking down this sermon. Because we're going to first look at what is in, uh, uh, giving to the needy, you could say, giving to those who have need. And then we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. And then we're going to look at fast. And in verse 18, that brackets these passages, we get this statement about our reward is in heaven with our heavenly Father. That Jesus keeps saying this again and again, that there's this reward with your heavenly Father, and this part of the sermon again and again and again, he's framing it around that statement. In other words, what he's saying is, I want you to know what life looks like with your heavenly Father starting now, and I'm going to use the everyday, very practical things of your life to help you cultivate that awareness of how to live for what lies beyond the box. And then heaven is mentioned seven times, and God the Father is mentioned ten times. In other words, your life, the essence of life, is to live in light of eternity with your heavenly Father. And all that, when we live that way, changes the way that we go around the board and live the game of life. See, the main point is that living is the art of getting used to our eternal reality. True living in this life is the art of getting used to the fact that we will spend eternity with our Heavenly Father. So every day, moment, is a chance to learn the joy of being with our Father. And so Jesus is going to help us learn how to find that life, cultivate that in our daily life in three ways. So first we're going to look at looking out, then looking up, and then looking in. Let's pray as we dive in. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we thank you for the ability to gather this morning. Lord, we don't take that lightly these days. And so, Lord, we thank you, giving us the ability to gather together, to worship you, to praise you, to encourage one another, to hear from your word. And so, Lord, this morning, we pray that you would help us to see what it looks like to live in light of eternity, and Lord, to find freedom there, to find peace, to find joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look out. In this first part, Jesus addresses how we give 
to those in need. So look at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So he begins by saying, okay, that you and your life are going to have opportunity to give to those who are in need all around you. And you should have your eyes up and be looking out to see that. But what's interesting is he starts with a warning. He starts with a beware. And what is he beware, saying beware of? What's he warning us about? Well, he's warning us, he says, not of practicing righteousness. He, he doesn't say uh, beware of the fact that uh, uh, practicing righteousness at all. No, what he says is he, he goes after the heart motivation. And he says, beware of practicing righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. In order to be seen by them. Now, why does Jesus say that? Why does Jesus give that warning? Here's what I'm going to break down. Because Jesus doesn't want us to build our sense of identity, our sense of joy, on our sense of our own benevolence. And our sense of our own goodness and giving benevolence. He doesn't want us to build our identity on that. And here's what I mean. Uh, when I grew up, I, uh, and when we get into the Lord's Prayer, you'll hear this. Uh, I grew up not really in, in, a, in a Christian family. The closest thing was that my grandmother was a strong Catholic, and so every now and then I would go with her to Mass. And, uh, and when I would go with her to Mass, she would always, uh, she'd bring like all 13 of her grandchildren uh, and in a row. So, of course, she had to be very stern with us uh, to get sit still. And one thing she would do was we, if we were good, then we got a dollar, and we could put the dollar in the offering plate when the offering plate came around. And, uh, and so grandma would have her, her, you know, just be like passing them out to all of her grandkids if you behaved. And so I'd be really good. And then, and I get this dollar and what my favorite part of the entire mass, cause I didn't actually understand a lot of what was going on, but my favorite part of the entire mass was when they would pass the offering plate and I would take out that dollar as of course, as if it's mine, like, Hey, and I would put it in the offering plate and I pass it. And there was always this guy at the end of the pew, this, this older gentleman who would always look down and see it. And when you'd put the dollar in there, he'd kind of look at me and be like, Hmm. And I was like, I like lived for that moment. I was like, that's right, buddy. That's right. I am benevolent, right? And, and, and so there was that, Jesus is saying, are you doing this to be seen by others? I remember every year the Salvation Army, right, is ready with their, their bell. And it's like, we're like Pavlov's dog, right? Like we, we run up, there's like the bell and you go up and you're like, it doesn't matter like if you throw like a nickel or like a penny or a 20 in there. Like either way, it's like when they do it, they ring the bell really high, right? And, they, and everyone kind of looks around, you're like, oh, me? Uh, I, it is, maybe it was a 20, I don't know, that I put in there, right? Uh, but there is a way of giving that is to be seen by others. And here's why Jesus says, you want to be careful about that because he says, one, that's your reward. What I mean by that is that moment, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to live so that you get the smiling face of your heavenly father, so that you receive the joy of God. And by the way, I'm not saying give to Salvation Army. I just want to backtrack. Give to Salvation Army, give in the offer plate. There's not, but the thing Jesus is after is what is your heart in doing these things? And he says, what happens is in that moment when that guy kind of smiles at me and I'm like, yes. Jesus says, if that's why you did it, you just received your reward right then and there. If the bell is your reward, whatever it is in your life is your reward, then he says, that's your reward right there. And the problem is, it's fleeting. And it's gone like a vapor. And then also, I think on a more profound level, based on the context here, is Jesus saying, if you build your happiness on that, then what happens when you get to heaven and there's no more need? 
If your sense of joy, if your sense of being enough, if your sense of being righteous and good and, and benevolent is through that, then what happens for eternity when you no longer can build your identity upon that? Because there won't be any need. But that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. Because so do we, what do we do? Do we not give? No, Jesus isn't saying don't give. Jesus doesn't say don't give to the needy, but beware when you do give. Watch yourself. In fact, Jesus actually says when you give to the needy. Just to be clear, Jesus assumes his followers will give to those who have need. We will be the kind of people who live with our resources and our finances, not with closed fists, but with open hands, looking out to see where there's need. Because Jesus says elsewhere, he says, the poor will always be with you. There will always be need in this world. There will always be opportunity, but it matters how you use that opportunity. Because he says you can either use those opportunities to make much of yourself, or you can use those opportunities to reflect on God's goodness and God's benevolence towards you. Because what Jesus is saying in this sermon elsewhere and building up to this, he's saying, do you see that you are the recipient? You have received from God's riches. You've received from God's goodness, his overflowing towards you. In other words, it's not you who's benevolent. It's God who's benevolent. It's like God is like my grandma giving me that dollar. And then we're like the ones who take the dollar and then we're dancing around with it going, look at me. And Jesus is saying, God's the one who's benevolent. And so don't live your life seeking the commendation of men, but seek chances and opportunities to give in order to commune with your Father. And when you give, to reflect upon the fact that it's like, you are good, you are gracious, you've lavished your riches upon me. And all I'm doing now is just paying that forward. All I'm doing now is I'm just expressing your goodness in a world that desperately needs your goodness. Because here's the thing. That applause, man's applause, it will go in the box. But communion with your heavenly Father will not. It lasts. It's the essence of eternity. See, what Jesus is saying is part of the art of getting used to eternity is learning to cherish God's benevolence. That's part of getting used to and cultivating that reality in your life. You want to get used to and have a mindset that thinks about eternity and is not so overwhelmed by the moment, then one of the things you can do is look out and where there's need and reflect on when you meet that need, the fact that God is the one who's benevolent, that he's the one who's rich towards us. In other words, what I'm saying is this, this thing, this wallet, this could be one of the most profound tools for your discipleship. This thing that is in your pocket and the resources that you have is something that every day you can use to preach the gospel to yourself. Not to make much of ourself, not to boost our image of ourself or our own ego, but this is something that we can say, God has lavishly graced me. And now I get to grace others because I have a God who is benevolent. And I know because he's benevolent and he is rich in mercy, I know that I am secure forever because of his riches and kindness and grace towards me and his son. And imagine, I mean, as, look, as the economy probably is going to sputter along like a Ford Pinto, right? 
Like it's probably, probably coming. We all know this is a reality that probably at some point is waiting us. Imagine if we as a church, though, were a people who weren't so overwhelmed by how am I going to get around the board and what's going to be the next thing that I'm going to acquire. And those things on day-to-day providing for your family are important and they have to be a priority at the same time. What if we were a people, though, who weren't so frantic, but we were so sure that we have a Father who is rich in mercy, that we were the kind of people able to live with open hands just because we want to express and commune with our Father and make His mercy known. How profound of a reality that would be if we as the church live that way in this season as a culture. It's where we can truly be rich. But we don't just look out, we look up. The Lord's Prayer is what's next here, starting in verse 5, and it's probably, if you think about it, this is most likely the single set of words that has been said the most in human history. Think about that. It's probably the, the set of words that's been said the most in human history, and because of that, it can actually be easy just to read these words very quickly. Most likely, it's one of the few passages that almost all of us in here can repeat. It's one of the passages that I can repeat uh, as, as a child growing up. It was one of the only things in all of Scripture that I knew because of going to Mass. I just picked it up, how to say it, because they would say it every single service. And so it's almost kind of like, you know, when you live next to someone who has like a train go by their house, you know, and you're like, oh my goodness, what's happening? And they're like, oh, I forgot that even happened anymore, right? Like they just tune it out. It's almost like the same way, like this profound reality is right here, and we're so used to it that it's like people come in, they're like, well, did you see what is here? And you're like, I, I, I didn't even hear it. We can take it for granted. There's profound truths that are here. And that, honestly, this prayer itself could and at some point probably should be its own sermon series. So I'm in no way going to exhaustively be able to explain it. One of the things that I've done is I've uh, put together a basic kind of start to use, a pattern for using the Lord's Prayer. We're going to have it on the live stream. We're going to drop it. They'll put it in the email announcements tomorrow. You can begin to use that because I think one of the things with the Lord's Prayer is where it's really powerful is when you actually start incorporating the Lord's Prayer into your daily prayer rhythms. Um, So that'll be online. You'll be able to use that if you'd like. Um, Just simple exercises and whatnot that you can use. But I want to focus in looking at this on our desperate need for prayer. Our desperate need for prayer. And here's why this is important. Because notice again what Jesus says in verse 7. And when you pray. And when you pray. Now, I know some of you, when I say that, you go, uh, I don't want to really tell the pastor this right now or anyone around me, but I, I don't really pray. It's not something that I do a lot. And I, I think we, we assume that when Jesus says, when you pray, what we're just, what, what he's assuming is, uh, you know, of course, as good Christians, we all pray. But what he's saying here is, wh- whether or not you think you pray, you do. It's not a question of if. Because all prayer is, is crying out when you're in a time of need, crying out in fellowship to something that you believe actually has power over your situation. And I bet right now, whether or not we're praying to the Lord, right now we are all crying out to someone or something as the stresses continue to pile up. And so Jesus is saying, when you cry out, make sure that you're directing it to the Lord of heaven and earth, not just blowing up on your spouse and your kids. Not just venting on social media. Not just kind of crying out to the heavens and just just lamenting because he's saying there is a Father in heaven who hears you. 
there is one who hears you and will respond to you and others, it's not a question of if you will cry out in your hour of need. It is who will you cry out to and will he hear you and will he respond? And so Jesus says, follow this pattern and let it guide you and equip you and teach you to turn to your heavenly father. He says, pray like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, Jesus first, we should say, when Jesus says to say this, he's not kind of acting like this is kind of like a, like I'm a genie in a bottle, and if you just rub me the right way with the words, then I'll give you whatever you want, right? This isn't some magical incantation that Jesus is giving us. But Jesus is saying, here is a pattern that you can use, a model that is going to give you broadly, holistically, everything you need to incorporate into your prayer, and at the same time, focus you in your prayer. And so he says, pray like this, and it's easy as it begins to miss that Jesus tells us to address God as Father. Don't we just read right over that? Do you realize that there is no other religion? I'm pretty sure no other religion in the world where you address God as Father. There were, can you imagine in this time when it was gods of just power and might, and then Jesus says, pray to him as the Father, how this would have struck them? I, I can imagine them almost not even hearing the rest of this prayer because their minds are just starting to like, how can I call him Father? But this is exactly, again, the essence of what exactly Christianity gives us, what the gospel gives us. This is what's unique to it when it says that salvation is sharing in that adoption, of being invited into that relationship as Jesus is the Son and His Father, being invited and adopted into that relationship with God the Father. In Jesus, God is our Father, and we are invited to enter His presence as His children. Many of you don't know this, uh, which is strange for Lauren and I, my wife, because um, in California, at the church we were at, this was kind of a long process, but our second, our, our son, Calvin, our, our second born, he's adopted. Um, and, and he, I remember the process when we went through it, and I've been, I reflected a lot on this language of adoption and fatherhood during that process. It was a two and a half, two, over a two-year process. It was long. And I remember then the day when we I knew, I was like, I'm not going to get emotional, but I do every time I talk about it. We go into this courtroom, and, and at one moment, you know, he's like, the, he's this child who legally lives with us, and we're kind of his protectors, and we're legally responsible, and then at the next moment, the judge takes her gavel and slams it down and says, you are now adopted. This is your family. And, and, and while in many ways nothing really changed, I just realized the finality of it in this beautiful picture of the fact that this he, I'm his father. He's my son. That there's no difference between him and our bio kids. There's no, I mean, we don't, we just don't think that way. There's, it's just, our love is the same for him. That his concerns are my concerns. That at that moment, his home become, or my home became his forever home. That his needs became my responsibility. That my... <laughs> the last part of every one of my LaCroix, he gets to drink, right? That everything that is mine is his. All of my riches, my inheritance, at that moment, everything that is mine, if something were to happen to me and Lauren, it would go to him equally just like our other children. There is no distinction. 
And do you know how it's so profoundly true, that reality? Is the fact that when he runs in this room after this service, he's going to call me Papa. He's not going to call me Mr. Dennings. I'm not going to say, well, well, son, it's, it's Pastor Dennings, right? Sir. He's going to call me Papa. He's going to call me Father. He can interrupt me at any time with his needs. He can come to me, and he knows that I'm predisposed to him. And what Jesus is saying here is that in the same way you have been adopted, just as Christ is his son, you have been adopted, you are heirs. You can go to him, you can sit on his lap, you can nuzzle up next to his strength in the same way. And his home is your forever home. Let that sink in. But unlike me, then Jesus says, hallowed be his name. That's where the, uh, the analogy breaks down, because God is not only our Father, but God is also our Holy Father. Hallowed is a word that we don't really use now in a secularized society. The closest we come to is like Halloween, right? Uh, and, and so what it just means is to make something holy. And you might say, wait, wait why, why would Jesus say, pray, God, make your name holy? Isn't it already holy? Isn't he already holy? Well, what Jesus is saying here is, yes, but we don't live as if he is holy. And because he's your Father and you are now adopted, we so often live our lives in a way that is not in alignment with God's holiness. And so what Jesus is saying here is, God, would you please, in your grace, in your mercy, would you make me live in such a way that I bring glory to your name? You see, God is both our Father and, and he invites us in, and God, though, at the same time when we come to him, what's distinct about him is that he is holy, that he is a consuming fire. Something that we've looked at already in this sermon is the law of God and how Jesus fulfills it. And we look there at the fact that you cannot, Jesus comes to fulfill the law. It doesn't get rid of the law because it doesn't abolish God's holiness. He fulfills God's holiness. We come in through a death and a sacrifice and God invites us in. But if we are covered by Jesus' blood, that sacrifice, then we draw near to a holy father. I've never done this. I've always wanted to, but in, in my mind, it's, it's like we get a, it's like being hugged or embraced by a tiger or like a lion. At the same time, the strongest, purest being you could imagine enfolding you in his arms. Let that sink in. In the midst of all of them, whatever it is, the chaos, the, the uncertainty, the anxiety, the stress, draw near. He's your father. He invites you in. He is also holy. He protects his holiness. And the next, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, here's the thing. God is reigning now. Jesus, after he died, then he ascends to the Father's right hand, and he's on the throne at the right hand of God. He's on the throne right now. And so often why Jesus has us pray this prayer is because we live as if it's not true. So we have to every day remind ourselves, Lord, your kingdom come, which means not my will be done. Not my will be done. Not my kingdom, not my little kingdom, not my whatever my will is, but Lord, your will above all else. And the reason... This right now is such a needed thing. And the Old Testament, let me paint a picture for you because I think right now we forget that God is on the throne. 
In the Old Testament, Isaiah 6, if you, if you know your Bible, you know that Isaiah 6 is famous for when Isaiah the prophet goes into God's temple and they cry out, holy, 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 and he says, you know, who shall I send? And we, we know that part of it, but the very first verse in that, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. The context is important because what it's saying there is in the year that a king had died. In the ancient world, when a king died, it meant that all their sons would start getting their different factions together and they'd start warring and killing one another. It was a time of instability. It also meant because they were warring and the kingdom was divided that outside forces would invade. It was the most vulnerable time for the nation, the most unsettling, the most uncertain, the most economically catastrophic time for a nation was when a king died. Sound familiar? And God invites Isaiah into the temple, and when Isaiah walks in, God presents himself as filling the temple with his robe, sitting on the throne. And you know what he's doing there? Because the temple stood in for God's presence on earth. And he's saying, I am on my throne, Isaiah. You see that the king has died. You see the chaos. You see everyone kind of biting their nails. What's going to happen? And he says, come Come into my presence and see what my kingdom is like, and I am on my throne. I have not budged, and not only that, but the veil of my robe is filling the entire world, that my reign and my dominion is covering everything. There is not one square inch of this world do I, that I do not point to and say, mine. And when Jesus says, pray, thy kingdom come, he is saying, enter into his presence, see him on the throne, and now if even then you could see him on his throne, now I have secured your place beside him on the throne, adopted a child, an inheritor of the kingdom of God. Jesus' kingdom will come, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus says, come into my presence, ask the Lord to bring that reality and bow your knee to God's will. You know, one, one of the, my favorite quotes of all time on prayer, we don't have it on the screen, but it, it's this, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. It's by Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City. I'm going to read that again. God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. See, God is our Heavenly Father, and we can trust that he is good. My son does not always trust what I'm doing, but I know what is good for him, and so he doesn't understand completely what's happening, but he can trust that I'm good. That's, that's something I say to him often. My wife and I are like, are we not good to you? Are you not fed and clothed, right? Some of you probably have done this with your kids, and yet they're like, you now are evil. You won't give me these uh, endless array of dum-dum pops, right? And you're like, maybe, maybe I understand something that you don't understand called childhood uh, 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 diabetes, and I'd like to protect you from that, right? I am predisposed to be good to you because I'm your father. I will not hand you a serpent or a stone when you ask for bread. God says, trust your heavenly father. Ask for his kingdom to come. You don't want your kingdom to come. You don't want to spend your life building around that board. And then at the end of it, he says, then it all goes back into a box. Invest in my kingdom because it lasts. Give us this day our daily bread. There are two dimensions to this. One is the obvious, which is the personal dimension. Lord, supply my need. I, I know so often when, when I feel that financial pinch and that stress, 
I have to go before the Lord and just remind the Lord, provide for my needs. I know you will. And, and I know we could say, look, we're, we're Americans. Like, we're praying this prayer while there's bread outside in our deep freezer, right? We, we, we rarely know this kind of one. But at the same time, it is, Lord, pray. Pray for basic contentment. Lord, make me content with the fact that I have the basic necessities of life and provide them. So there's that personal dimension. There's also a social dimension. I think we often look over because he says, give us our daily bread. See, this was something that Martin Luther, back in the Reformation, he made a lot around this verse because he said, do you realize that in order for you to have your daily bread, that means that there has to be a working, thriving economy around you for that to happen. That there has to be a thriving economy with good employment and a just society. And so when you pray this prayer, one of the things that you're praying for as well is, Lord, let there be a just society around me. Let there be just economics around me. Let there be just employee-boss relationships. Let there sustain it, Lord. Let us be a just society where trade can happen, where employment can happen, where business can thrive. And so if you're someone right now who's really concerned about the economy, be praying this prayer. Lord, give us our daily bread. Lord, give us, protect us, provide for us, give us wisdom. And then forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have, or, or as we have forgiven our debtors. You can hear my, uh, what I memorized, the Catholic version, coming out versus what's right on the page. Uh, but it captures what God is saying here is that this captures our vertical relationship with God. And how, what, how we understand how God has forgiven us directly affects our horizontal relationships with other people. I, I guarantee you, one of the things that I found is that when I'm most bitter and unable to forgive and I'm harsh with people, I can immediately draw a line to where I actually am believing that God is bitter and he's harsh and he's unforgiving to me and my sin. And it just flows out to other people. Whereas when I'm just secure in that and God has forgiven my sin and I'm, I'm in grace and God, I'm his child. And when I'm feeling that, believe me, it flows out in so many redemptive, graceful, beautiful ways into the relationships around me, no matter how hard they are. There's a direct relationship between our, our vertical and our horizontal relationship with God. And this confronts us with our true state when we pray. Because can you feel this when you pray like, Lord, you know, forgive us our debts. Lord, forgive me my debt. And those people uh, hammer them out on an anvil, right? Like you, you just, you don't want to pray for, for grace and to forgive others. And it, it, it brings our heart to the surface. This is what Martin Luther, again, the reformer, says uh, in respond, uh, about this verse, he summed it up well when he said, if anyone insists on his own goodness and despises others, let him look into himself when this petition confronts him. He will find he is no better than others and that in the presence of God, everyone must duck his head and come into, into the joy of forgiveness only through the low door of humility. All of us enter into God's presence through the low door of humility as sinners receiving grace. How could we not extend that grace to others? The Christ in you is bigger than the sin in you and the sin in others. Ask the Lord to captivate your heart with that. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, it's not saying that we should not be tempted at all. Catch that. It doesn't, it's not a prayer to say, Lord, don't, don't allow any temptation to come into my life at all. He says, don't allow me to be led into temptation. So it's in, uh, the Bible actually will talk about temptation honestly as something that refines us, 
almost as if it's, if it's for our good. It trains us in godliness that the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted. That often we will be driven into times of temptation because of the fact that it's what refines us and makes us more and more like Christ and allows us to mature. If there's no, it's almost like no pain, no gain. If there's no resistance, you don't get to train those muscles of holiness and, and character. But what he says instead is, don't give me, don't lead me into temptation. To entertain, entertain and consider the prospect of giving in to sin. Don't allow my mind to go there. Ask God to keep you from that. To respond in a godly way when temptation comes. And then deliver from evil. And evil here is evil outside us just as much as evil external to us or internal to us. All the evil around us. The flesh, the world, and the devil are real. Let me say that again because I think right now it's, we, we forget that with everything happening around us. The flesh as well as the world, as well as the devil, are real. That there's temptation, there's evil. And I think right now there, we just talked about this with our uh, connection group leaders, there are two ditches that we fall into as a society. Two extreme ditches that we're falling into. I'm going to call this on one side the extreme, maybe you could say the left side, we're falling into this extreme ditch of, of critical theory. And tearing everything down. And on the other extreme, we're falling into this ditch of critical theory, two CTs, so you can remember them, of, of conspiracy theory. That there's some big conspiracy out there and that we need to all be aware of the conspiracy. If we're aware of the conspiracy, then actually, then we will be okay. But remember, I know there's some legitimacy probably in all those, and there's a whole conversation to be had, but here's what I want you to remember. The original critic is Satan. The, the original conspirator is Satan. Do not, in your attempt to bring your own kingdom, do not become a co-critic or a co-conspirator. But instead, bow your knee to the one, look to the one who is the one deliverer, who is the one who brings salvation, the one who brings hope, the one who brings joy, the one whose kingdom comes into this world and will banish it forever so that his kingdom will stand forever and it is perfect righteousness, it is perfect justice, and his justice will be meted out. And Lord, help any of us if the gospel of Jesus Christ and his blood is not true. But it is. And so what Jesus is saying here is don't lead me into temptation and deliver me from evil. Come to me. I am the king who is coming. What Jesus is saying is part of the art of getting used to eternity is learning to trust God's control. So look up. Look up. But then lastly, Jesus says, look in. Uh, verses 16 through 18. It says, when, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting may, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be seen by others, but also by your heavenly Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now you see that theme again coming up. It's kind of bracketing everything that we've been looking at. 
And it may seem odd at first. You're like, why does he go to, to fasting here? Like, we're talking about prayer, and we're talking about giving the knee, and then all of a sudden, fasting. It's like Jesus was like, where do I throw this in? Ah, let's just do it right there, right? Like, that eh, sounds like a good place. Why does he bring in fasting? Because fasting surfaces hunger, while prayer satisfies it. Fasting, fasting surfaces hunger, while prayer satisfies it. The primary purpose of fasting is self-denial of normal necessities in order to intentionally attend to God in prayer, right? So there's our... There's our technical definition, right? Taking the normal things of life and then attending to God in prayer. In other words, what you're doing is you're taking the things that are becoming the things that you numb yourself with. The things that you entertain yourself with, the things that you use for escapism, those things that you use so that you don't have to really feel what is really going on in your soul. And you say, Lord, I'm not going to have these things for a time. And Lord, when I go without these things, obviously the primary is food. When I go without these things, then I realize how much I'm like, when I, when I, when I'm stressed, I want to go to that thing. And you realize you can't. And it trains you when you want to go to that thing to be awake to the fact that that thing actually controls my life. That thing actually comforts me. That's actually the thing that I go to. And Jesus is saying, I want you. That thing eventually one day will go in a box. But I won't. Come to me. You know, I realized this last week. There was one night where uh, I, I just felt this, like, you know, all the stress was piling up, and I didn't even realize it. And then we had this whole evening where the kids were in bed early, which, by the way, that's a miracle, okay? Some of you who are younger are like, well, your kids are in bed early, of course. Don't you just do that every night? No, it's not that easy, okay? So the kids got in bed on time, and then immediately what I found myself, I went to, like, Netflix, and I was, like, in a trance, like, ah, oh, ah. Oh. And I watched for two, over two hours, which is something I, I honestly don't usually do. And I realized at the end of my wife was sitting there, she was like, we had all this time that we could have spent with one another talking. And, and I felt, and I told her, I, I, it hit me. I, I knew it while I was doing it, but it was like, I just want to numb myself. And, and I want to escape. And when, when her words came to me, it hit me where I was like, Lord, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm not escaping to reality. I'm, I'm escaping from reality. And what this is inviting you to through fasting is to escape to reality, to awaken to what is reality, to awaken what's really going on in your soul, and to awaken to the one who really can heal and address your soul. And so for me right now, I'm fasting Netflix. Okay? Sounds profound, right? I'm fasting Netflix. That's what your pastor's doing. Because right now, I'm like, I just know my heart goes after it. And right now, when there are times when my heart wants to go there, it's been so good to be like, okay, Lord, I'm going to come to you. Because I'm not going to allow this to numb me and rob me of the most precious things in my life. So what is it for you right now? What is the thing right now that you keep coming to and going to? And could you take a day or even just half a day or some period of time just to set that aside and say, Lord, as this hunger comes up, I want you to satisfy me in the way that only you can. And so with that uh, guide online for the um, Lord's Prayer, there's also a, a guide for daily fasting. So if you want to do that for a day, there's a, there's a guide. Those are both together in that document. But at the end of it, it's not just for the sake of fasting. It's for the sake of looking to Christ. I love this quote from Robert Murray McShane. He was an old pastor in the 18th century, and he says this. He says, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. So as you look in, Jesus says, look in. Look at your hunger. Look at your heart. Look at your appetites. And then when you see it, take 10 looks at me. Look to me. And find your comfort in me. Jesus summarizes 
This whole part of the sermon with these words in verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, this life, Jesus is saying, is designed to prepare you for eternity with God. And every single thing in our life, every hour that we're given, every dollar that we are able to put back, every relationship we have, every talent we have, we are given so that we can invest it. And as we invest it, that our heart, which is so far from God's kingdom and valuing it in eternity, we can take our heart and say, heart, go here. And we can invest it to when our treasure is found in God's kingdom. Because one day we will come face to face with Christ. And he is our reward. Until then, use your wallet. Look out and use your wallet to preach the gospel. Look up and use your anxieties to point you to God and his comfort. Use your appetite and look in at your appetite and get honest with it in order to look back up and see Christ and his satisfaction. These everyday things may be, again, the greatest tool in your life for your joy, for your peace, for your ability to sleep at night. Preach the gospel to yourself with them. Use your wallet. Use your anxieties. Use your appetites. Look out, look up, and look in. Because one day, we'll all go back in the box. And when it does, what you sought all along will be your reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are our Heavenly Father. That when we were orphans, when we were lost, when we were dead in our sin, Lord, you welcomed us, invited us into your presence, adopted us, made us inheritors of your kingdom, of the riches of your grace. Lord, help us to see how profound that is. You are in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray that your will would be done, that on in Como it would be as it is in heaven. Lord, we know that we do not think that we are capable of that work, but Lord, we know eventually you will completely do that work. But Lord, we ask that you would do a work in our day and a work through us that even incrementally, even in small ways, Lord, that we would demonstrate your kingdom, that we would bring your kingdom to bear because, Lord, we are a people who lay down our will and lay down the pursuit of our kingdom for the sake of yours. Lord, make us that kind of people. Give us this day our daily bread, Lord. We ask, I ask for every member of this church, every person in the city, Lord, that we would, you would provide. Lord, that none would go hungry, that none would go without the basic necessities of life, and Lord, use us to accomplish that purpose. And Lord, would you sustain the economic structures? And we don't just ask that for ourselves, but we ask that globally, Lord, to provide for the movement of resources, because we know there is plenty. But Lord, help us to erect just structures to move those resources where they need to go and where there's need. And Lord, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lord, make us a people who are so overwhelmed by that vertical grace we receive from you that it overflows automatically to those around us. Lord, so that they might see 
that you are in fact gracious and good and they would experience it tangibly through our forgiveness. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, I pray that you would deliver each person in this room from falling into temptation. That Lord, when temptation comes, that you would make them captivated by your glory and your goodness and your beauty and your truth. And that would guide them through so that they would not give in to temptation and you would deliver us from evil. Lord, in this day where there is evil, Lord, that you would protect us. And Lord, also you would make us a people who are those who are passionate about pushing back evil and bringing light where there is darkness. And Lord, fighting where there are things that need to be fought and spoken against. And so, Lord, both protect us and lead us out of evil, but then, Lord, also use us as your means in the midst of that. Lord, we ask this in your Son's name. Amen.